Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Andy Jarvis, Director of Future of Food at the Bezos Earth Fund. Now, the Bezos Earth Fund was created by a commitment of $10 billion from Jeff Bezos back in 2020 to be distributed as grants to address climate and nature by 2030. So today we're going to be focusing on the future of food, and we'll explore the fund's work and drill into some specific initiatives that are truly innovative and thought-provoking. And so if you're remotely intrigued by what a next-gen cow could look like, and want to find out some really fascinating statistics and innovative initiatives, then today's conversation will not disappoint. And on that note, without further ado, Andy, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Hi, great to, great to be talking to you. Well, it's good to see you. You're out there in Colombia. I'm here in the UK. So we do have a bit of time difference. You're the director of Future of Food at the Bezos Earth Fund. And I'd love to start by finding out what the Bezos Earth Fund is all about. Sure thing, yeah. So I, I lead up the food work, but first of all, like what is the Bezos Earth Fund? It was set up two, three years ago now um, by Jeff Bezos. It's a $10 billion commitment by 2030, focused on nature and climate and kind of solving the nature crisis, solving the climate crisis and doing that together and doing it in a way that promotes equity and, and kind of social causes as well. So, so there's a kind of strong environmental justice piece to it as well. It kind of, you know, the, Jeff has a great story about why kind of the thinking behind some of this, you know, I mean, he went to space and some astronaut apparently said to him, um, you know, it's going to change when you go to space, it's going to change your perspective of the planet. Um, you know, and he was like, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. And he was kind of like, you know, looking forward to weightlessness and, you know, the experience and stuff. And, think, you know, I'm sure everyone says that, you know, but then when he did it and he, you know, he came down and he's talked very eloquently about how, you know, we just live in this tiny little thin edge, you know, between kind of rock and vacuum, you know, <laughs> and, you know, an all inhabitable life is in this tiny little thin edge. And so our logo actually has that, that thin, thin edge on it. Um, you know, and it's really about, you know, kind of celebrating the, the, the beauty of the planet. How do we, how do we solve the biodiversity crisis and protect nature because we need that? Um, and how do we address the, the, the enormous climate challenge that we have ahead of us? So, so that's the whole picture of the Bezos Earth Fund. Um, we have a number of programs working, working away on those things. We're quite well known for things like, um, protection. Um, so lots of work on conservation. We have, um, we just announced, for example, help support to the Pacific to set up the biggest marine protected area on the planet. Um, I'm taking charge of food, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of an outlier in the sense because it's it's not necessarily you know kind of the beauty of biodiversity and nature and so on, but it's 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 the biggest threat that we have for nature and climate. So I'm looking at it from that perspective. Absolutely. Well, you know, there is a lot on the regenerative agriculture side as well. So all of these things, they everything intertwines, right? Oh, yeah, everything's connected. The more you work in, especially when you work in the food system, you just realize everything is connected. Uh, it is one big mega network of of relationships and and uh, um, and dependencies and so on. And so, you, you know, you can work here, but you're affecting something over here. It's it's a classic systems problem uh, to work on the food system. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about you and what you're actually doing. So the title sounds grand, Director of Future of Food. Wonderful title. 
very consequential. Food, if we don't have that, we're going to have a problem. Um, and there's a lot, right, in terms of the uh, logistics, the supply chains, big farmers, small farmers, uh, awareness, behaviors, attitudes, all of these things on the commercial side, on the, on the consumer side, and so forth. Tell me a little bit about what you do. I always get nervous when everyone calls me by the name Director of Future of Food. You know, it's it's a bit of a bit of a big responsibility. Don't you think? Um, it is, but, it uh, is. beyond the pompousness of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, what it really means is it, it, uh, what we're looking at at a very macro scale. What we have is eight billion people rising to ten billion people, changing diets and habits of you know consumption. Um, the food system as a huge, completely under. I think under recognized source of emissions, it's one third of global emissions and rising. Uh, you know, everyone talks about energy and everyone talks about transport and cars and electric vehicles and so on and you know tankers and ships around the the, the planet. But the food is is up there with transport. In in fact, it's the second source of emissions. Um, and um, while energy is transforming before our eyes, food continues to rise in terms of emissions. So that's the first piece. The second is it's a huge footprint on our planet, right? And so two thirds of ice-free land is one way or another being used to produce food, be it livestock, animal products, be it crops and so on. And so you have two thirds of ice-free land being used for this. And so, you know, really you can't solve the nature crisis. You can't solve the climate crisis unless you transform food because the business as usual that we have today is simply uh, simply not a viable business business model for us to feed 10 billion people um, uh, in a healthy way and um, not tear up the planet in the process. Yeah. Now, here's a big question. Uh, we may not have enough time, but what what are the key challenges that you're grappling with right now? You, you highlight the crisis that we have, uh, the scarcity of resources. What are some of those salient points that's perhaps worth showcasing here to give folks a better understanding of the dynamics that you're contending with? Yeah, I mean, so the one thing, I mean, the way we've kind of landed into working on food, we use this equation of, you know, where are the emissions? Where is the a kind of big land footprint where we, where we really need to be giving back to nature? We need to be not only protecting, you know, what's still pristine, but we need to be giving back to nature. We need to spare land back for nature if we're gonna address nature and climate crises as well. Um, and so when you look at use that equation, what we do is kind of where are the emissions? Where is the nature, uh, you know, high biodiversity value and the, the um, you know, the biggest kind of footprint in terms of land? And where are people uh, at the center of all this that can be the agents of change? And use that the second you do that, we've landed on the issue around livestock. Um, and so, you know, the if you look in, um, you know, in terms of from a from a huge from a food system perspective, you know, livestock is a huge chunk of emissions. It's a huge um, portion of of land being used to produce animal source foods. It's also highly dynamic in terms of demand drivers as well. And so you have huge growth in demand for animal source foods in many emerging economies. And so it's been the kind of primary uh, driver of diet change over the last 20, 30 years, where you see basically people get more disposable income and they purchase more animal source foods. And so you know, that is where all of the big numbers are. Um, and so we've landed on this, this issue around livestock as a, as a first challenge that we're we're taking on how can we produce uh, 
um, you know, deliver food for 10 billion people that is highly nutritious, uh, but also um, is um, healthy for both people and healthy for the planet. And so we have to look at livestock critically. And, um, you know, and uh, and so, yeah, we've been rolling out kind of a, a series of grants and thinking through, well, what is this transformation that we need in livestock to um, to bring things back into balance? What does that look like, that transformation? So, and I'd love to get into a little bit of the work you're doing, the partnerships, the grant making, and so forth. Is that as straightforward as telling folks, look, stop eating so much beef, move into vegetarian lifestyle, pescatarian perhaps? What, what does it actually look like? And, you know, substantive show, you know, more than 50% of the world cares about sustainability, but quite a f small percentage are actually willing to pay extra for it. Um, what are some of the dynamics there? Yeah, and and I mean this is where you know, people very quickly in food in this in, in you know in all the work that we do in the food system people very quickly get very passionate and very emotional about it. No one likes to be told what they should or shouldn't eat. You know, starting starting here at home, if I tell my wife, oh, you shouldn't eat that, I get into big trouble. Um, you know, and I think um, you know just generally speaking, you know, people see their food choices as a very personal thing, and 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 and. You know, and it's it's deeply cultural as well. So so we we stay away from the kind of telling people what they should eat. What we're focused on is how do you just get more sustainable options available for consumers, and then they can make the choice, right? And if you are all about sustainability, it's not necessarily paying more, but you can choose this instead of that. Um, um, and so you know, we're focused on choice rather than advocating for anything. And and you know, and, and the diet shift that we need to be thinking about on a global scale is very, very different for one person versus the other. You know, there are over consumers, um, and there are under consumers around the world. And um, you know, and so it's it's very much everyone kind of jumps to general conclusions and things. It's very personal. It's very depending on you know where you are, the context you're in, the kind of you know the the level of income you have right now, and your kind of current consumption levels. So so we're just focused on choice. Um, and that choice can come from multiple, multiple kind of, there's multiple options there. You know, one is enormous opportunities to make the livestock um, sector more efficient, right? There is absolutely no reason why we have to be using, you know, so of that two thirds of ice-free land that's used for the food system, two thirds of that is for livestock. And there is no reason why we need all that land to produce um, you know, the current level of animal source foods, you know, so there's enormous opportunities to intensify production to produce more milk and more meat on less land. Um, so that's one of the things that we're looking at is how do we intensify production? Another one is just reducing um, uh, the emissions looking at methane, right? And so cows, cows are like machines, methane machines, you know, just pouring out methane. Again, the, you know, methane is the, a highly, highly potent gas. It's um, uh, a significant source of, of current climate change. And um, cows are the biggest source of methane on the planet. And it's not, not energy and oil and gas exploration, it's cows. Um, and so, you know, we really just haven't looked at kind of cows and how can we change the, change the cow itself, you know, to be less of a methane machine, but also cows in the systems that they're growing in, you know, the um, you know, the, 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 the grazing and the things they're eating, how can we reduce the emissions through that? So we're looking at methane reducing um, technologies as well for cows. So, so that's on that one side. We can get into the details in a minute, if you like, on these things. But, you know, that's one side is kind of make livestock more sustainable. You know, another one is looking, and this very much depends on where you are, but, 
you know, if you are an over-consumer of livestock products, it's not good for your health and it's not good for the planet's health. And that's where, you know, we, we should be looking at more plant-rich diets. Um, and so in some parts of the world, we should be, you know, looking to to provide, you know, easier options to to, to lean forward on plant, plant-rich diets, you know, and have it, you know, so that the vegetarian kind of section on menus is not kind of tucked away on the last page. You know, you lean forward, the first options are the vegetarian ones and things like that. So there's lots of things you can do there, just, again, providing um, choice for consumers and going, you know, deeper on the, on the plant-rich side of things of, uh, you know, food. So that's that's another one. And then the other piece that we're looking at, and this is a little bit more controversial with some 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 groups, is... Go ahead, let's is hear it. You need, yeah, you like that, right? <laughs> um, you you need also to think about alternatives. So I call them serial carnivals, right? You know, there are people that, I mean, it's, it's you know, there are many, many people on the planet and, and kind of a, it's almost instinctive, you know, meat is something that humans eat, right? We've evolved eating meat. And, um, and so, you know, you need to provide, you know, options for those serial carnivores that potentially you can switch out your beef for an alternative to that, which tastes just the same, which costs the same or less and is nutritionally equal or better. And, and so there's a whole revolution going on in that space as well. And we're eager to support that as well. So again, it's just getting more sustainable options um, in front of consumers. So it's the whole area of alternative proteins. And I don't know if that's so controversial, that alternative proteins. I mean, some of the things I've tasted here, and I remember having a few guests on the show talking about this, um, including, if I remember correctly, one of our first guests, Mike Barry, who was running sustainable business at Marks Spencer's, uh, for instance, talking about Beyond Meat Burger and things like that. The flavors and I speak as somewhat of an expert of what meat should taste like, some of the flavors are just um, excellent. You know, it's not that I'm going out of my way to to enjoy this burger. In actual fact, I might enjoy it more than a real beef burger. No, I, I, I mean, I agree. I think, I mean, the products are good right now, but I actually think there's, there's huge opportunity for them to be a lot better. And, you know, you can produce a... And you know, a kind of product analogous to meat that tastes the same. It could cost a significantly less. It can be more nutritious, and um, and it will have one twentieth of the emissions and land footprint of you know regular beef. I think you know that's why we need to move towards. I you know I'd say we're not quite there, and and so our bet is we just need more investment on the R&D side of things to get these products better, um, to drive the price down, to drive the taste up. Um, texture is super important for, you know, for, for, for our, you know, kind of experience eating it, get the texture right. Um, so that's, that's, that's the challenge. I think we're already, you know, we're already close on some products, uh, but I think we can, uh, we can get better. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's controversial that on, you know, in certain circles, right. You know, I, and, and what we're trying to do is, promote this kind of all of the above approach, right? It's not, it's not, you know, like all livestock needs to stop, all farmers, you know, ranchers need to, you know, find a different business. We're gonna just produce alternative proteins and take over the market. That's not in any way the narrative. You know, the narrative is one of choice. And if you can have alternative proteins at market, 10, 20% of market, in a market which is growing like exponentially in so many <laughs> in so many places, right? But if you can grow that old protein market as well, um, that has planetary level impacts in terms of reduced land and reduced emissions. So, so it's um, but it but it is right now there's there's a kind of war of 
labeling, you know, if it's not milk from a cow, it's not milk. Um, there's info wars about um, all sorts of, you know, the, the concerns that there are around alternative proteins. So there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of interest groups pushing quite strong polarizing narratives. And I think what we're trying to just take the edge off that, it doesn't need to be so passionate, it doesn't need to be so polarized. So you touched a little bit on the production, a little bit on the livestock, a little bit on the consumers, uh, and a little bit on those alternative products. Considering that we have a limited amount of time and you have a huge budget, give us a little bit of insight into one of those, perhaps within the livestock vertical, um, those methane machines, as you've pointed out, maybe there's something fascinating you want to share with us. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a few things. I mean, we're 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 all about innovation in the Vezas Earth Fund. You know, I think um, you know this comes. You know, Jeff is is someone that you know is is deeply deeply believes in entrepreneurship and in innovation. And so, you know, that's that the the area of methane reducing technologies is one that he's he's uh, him and uh, Lauren Sanchez are both kind of particularly passionate about. Um, you know, and and it's a huge innovation opportunity there because we've just never really looked at it. Uh, so some of the examples on the methane reduction that I kind of like, you know, one is, I mean, one is genetics. So we're looking at, we've just never selected. So we have cows that are out there. We've always selected for milk quality or, you know, the the, the quality of beef or the speed of, you know, of growth um, of the animal and things like that, the productivity side of things. Or, you know, we've selected for those kinds of things. We've never selected cows for methane. So, you know, if you look, Within a herd of cows, you could have 100, 100 cows out there in your farm. Um, you know, one animal could be producing 20% more methane than another one. And, we, and, and, and we've never tapped into this genetic variability. So that's one area that we're really quite fascinated by is how can we start selecting for low methane with, you know, which could be uh, characteristic with zero negative impact or even positive impacts on, on productivity. So, so we should just start you know, selecting for this genetics. So that's one area that we've started investing in. How can we, how can we breed next generation cows, which will look the same, which will produce the same or better, but also just reduce the methane, which is which is uh, my favorite statistic in this. Is I, I I love to throw this out. Um, it, the methane is eighty percent burps, twenty percent farts. That's, uh, <laughs> Everyone thinks it comes out the other end. It's I always say out. I learn a lot on this show. Every week I speak to some thought leader, but here we go. I have no idea of that statistics. I, I love it. <laughs> good bit of party. So, uh, so, so, yeah, next-gen cows. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so, yeah, more so about, genetics yeah. is interesting. Another another one that we're looking at is, is, is a vaccine. You know, these are little enzymes in the rumen, methanogens, that create all of this, you know, global problem, the tiny little, you know, microbes. In, in the rumen of the animal that's creating all of this gas. Um, and so is there a means where we can vaccinate cows, which just shuts off those methanogens? Um, so that's another area we're kind of looking at. That one's very early stage and, you know, kind of probably high risk. Um, you know, it's it, there's certainly not a cert that we can do it, but um, it's it's one of those high risk, high, re high reward um, options. So we're interested in looking at um, um, things like the vaccine. Uh, another one that I, I, I think is really fascinating, and this is, you'll, you'll know this from uh, Argentina, right? I mean, what generally happens in, in many parts of grazed areas where you have cows in extensive systems, so it's, you know, in the Pampas, or it could be in the Amazon, or it could be in Mongolia, 
you know, you just kind of put the cow out and they graze around a massive area, just kind of nibbling away at the tops of the grass. And it's actually, that's one of the most in, um, inefficient systems that we have on the planet. Um, and um, if you really want to produce more on the same amount of land, what you do is you rotate your, your cattle. So you put in fences and you have your cattle in this bit here today. Tomorrow they'll go over here and then the next day there. And, that, and then what you're doing is you're leaving the grass to recover, build up more biomass, and then the cows come in again and eat it. And so that rotational grazing is you know, a one-shot wonder to move you know, increase your, your, you know, your productivity two, three times if you, if you do it right. Um, the problem is it costs a lot. You've got to put fences in. The, those fences often are with posts from, from, from trees that you cut down and you're putting in electric fences or you're putting in electric fences. The wire costs money, the electricity, the, you know, all of these things. One of the things we've got working with Cornell University right now is how can we kind of create remote control cows? So how can we rotate cattle without the need to put fences in? Uh, and so we're looking at, actually, we started out thinking it would be a collar, but it's actually, it's, we're, we're potentially landing on something that could be an ear tag, where it's just a sound. And so just like you, you, know, you train your dog with dog whistle and things like that, can we train cows so that when they're kind of wandering off beyond where they should be grazing, they start, you know, a little sound just pushes them back into that, into that zone. So we're looking at how can we have low-cost ear tags for virtual fencing, essentially. And, 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 and if you do that, you introduce that into these areas, extensive areas, you know, across many parts of Latin America. We can give ranchers the opportunity to vastly increase their efficiency. Um, and we can do deals, you know, if start rotationally grazing these 50 hectares, spare these other 50 hectares and send it back to forest. Um, so we're looking at things like that. How can, we, how can we intensify in some areas and spare in others through technologies like that, these collars, remote control cows? Fascinating stuff. Now your background, I can see your background. It looks like a perfectly normal office with some books in the back. It doesn't look like some innovative research lab where everybody's coming up with all of these <laughs> crazy ideas. Um, but someplace there must be that mindset of just thinking outside the box and what could this look like? Give us a little bit of insight into that. How do you guys come up with uh, your thinking, where you might want to tap into? Uh, what does it look like? Well, I'm, I'm new to philanthropy, so I spent 22 years, like on, I would say, like kind of on the other other side of the fence, right, where the grass is not necessarily <laughs> greener. But uh, you know, I, I, I came from the side that was hustling for philanthropy money before. So I, I, I led a large research organization for a bit on, uh, um, on, on the research side, doing um, all sorts from genetics through to, through to um, these things, uh, working on food security in the CGIR. Um, so I, I come from that background, so I kind of know that. Right now, it's yeah, just working from my home office uh, happily here in Colombia. But um, I mean, what we, what we look for is, is, you know, one thing is we're not, we're, we're called a fund, but we don't invest in companies. We're not like um, investing in startups and things like that. You know, what we're, we're trying to do is, help the whole sector rather than picking winners or particular we're not trying to make money with this we're just trying to help entire sectors um raise their game in terms of nature and climate and equity so we're looking for great ideas and supporting those in a way that's kind of pre-competitive or um open access so with cornell for example the idea is this ear tag 
this it tag with a bit of luck is going to be just open access, um, you know, licensed out. If, you know, if you're in Kenya and you want to uh, commercialize this, license technology and, and go for it. Um, so we're looking, you know, we're looking really at that, that side of things, not for supporting not-for-profit organizations, particularly universities, and anyone with a great idea, you know, we're, we're, I'm always on the lookout for these things, you know, and people, um, I get, you know, contacted. I've, I'm like a kid in a candy store sometimes because you just get these crazy, wacky ideas kind of coming across your desk. Some of them crazy and wacky, some of them crazy, wacky and actually brilliant. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so, yeah, we look, we, 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 we're looking for those. We're in the business for those. And, and, um, you know, if it really checks out as being something that could be, potentially quite transformational we love risky ones as well maybe it's not going to work that's fine if it has a big reward we'll go for it so we're uh we're a philanthropy looking for innovation we're willing to take risks and we really value the the idea you know it's 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 not we don't support programs we support ideas mm. And you're happy to hear about these ideas, which is good because some people say, look, I don't accept any unsolicited applications or I'm not. But in your case, not only are you proactively looking out, but you're happy to get some crazy email in your inbox and it might be um, brilliant, as you pointed out. Yeah, and many are not. <laughs> some of them are brilliant, though. And, and uh, yeah, and, 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 and then, you know, digging into it, checking it out, learning a little bit. I, you know, I come from a technical background and so I know a little bit. In, enough about uh, most things to be dangerous is what I say, you know. So I can dig into the you know the technical side of things, and then we we really are a kind of funder that looks to co-develop these, co-create the idea, co-develop the idea with our potential grantees. So you know, it's not kind of just send me a proposal and we'll consider it. It's it's very much built um, through dialogue and, and co-development. Excellent. And one, once these ideas come into your inbox and you check them out and you think, yeah, this one looks brilliant. Uh, what's the process then? Do you have a committee? Do you, do you bounce the idea off with a few of your colleagues? Is it a very cumbersome process? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, we're, we're trying to be lean and mean in the Earth Fund. Um, but, um, but yeah, obviously, you know, internally, we, we, we discuss it and see if it fits. I mean, it needs to fit. You know, it's not just any idea to transform the food system at the moment. We're on sustainable protein. So anything in that kind of space right now, we're particularly interested in. Um, and, um, you know, and if it really is a, you know, great idea, it's coming from a group with track record reputation where, you know, that we can, you know, that we have, have belief in, um, you know, it's as much the idea and also, you know, great people behind it. Um, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss it internally, co-develop it with them. And, 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 and we try to move as quick as we can. I think, you know, compared to most, most other funders in the philanthropy space, we're quite, quite quick to move when we do. Uh, but that biggest barrier, I think, you know, is that first one. It's just having having an idea that's compelling that really kind of captures captures the imagination and can be transformational. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Here's a question for you: key takeaway. What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Well, you know what? What I always, I mean, we go back to the just general things of the food system. You know, it's like everyone grew up with the idea of don't waste water. You know, kind of. Uh, turn the tap off, you know, while you're brushing your teeth. Everyone grows up with the idea of, you know, turn off light bulbs, save energy, all of that kind of sustainable thing. I mean, the, the thing that most people don't realize is that every single day, at least three times a day, they are making choices which have huge collective, you know, kind of accumulated impact on the planet. And that's what you eat. 
Uh, and so, you know, the, the key takeaway that I'd say for everyone is just, you know, have a think about what you're eating and think about that impact that it's having on the planet and how you every day can make those choices um, and really make a difference. It's, you know, the, the, it's kind of two things that an individual can really meaningfully do in terms of sustainability, you know, and you need, for example, in energy and all of this transformation, that's government policy needs to lean forward and do it. But as an individual, you can fly less and the emissions coming from, you know, your individual footprint is defined by how much you fly and what you eat. That's that's the primary, primary thing. So just think about it. Key takeaway, you know, next time every meal you eat, just just have a think, you know, what what is it you're eating? Where is it coming from? And what's my 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 uh, footprint in terms of nature and climate as a result? Wonderful. Andy, thank you so very much for a very enjoyable and insightful conversation today. Thanks for making the time all the way from Colombia to join me today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks a lot, Albert. Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Andy Jarvis, Director of Future of Food at the Bezos Earth Fund. For information about this conversation and more than 250 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.